My name's Luke Chadwick. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? Marty! You've got to come back with me! Where? Back to the future! Doc, we better back up. We don't have enough roads to get up to 88. Roads? Well, we're going. We don't need roads. I'm Luke Chadwick. I'm a former professional football player. I started my career as a young player at Manchester United, then went on to play for many other clubs throughout my career. Stopped playing football about five years ago now and I'm currently involved in an organisation called the Football Fun Factory. And I believe your, your team is uh, Cambridge. Yeah, massive Cambridge United fan since the age of six, seven years old when I went to my first game at the Abbey Stadium and fell in love with the place, really, and followed the team throughout my childhood years. And I was lucky enough to play for them right at the back end of my career, which was a, a dream come true. Superb. And the podcast itself, Luke, is about uh, football and, and mental health and men's mental health. Could you give us an idea as to why you agreed to do an interview for us? Yeah, I've listened to the, the podcast before and it's a, it raises awareness of mental health, which is obviously always a good thing. And the more awareness that we can raise of it, the more likely people are likely to talk about their own mental health to get through the, the challenging times easier and quicker when you can talk about your problems. So that was the main reason to, to appear and speak to you guys. So, as we you mentioned before, you were you were born in Cambridge, but signed for Man United as a teenager. Did you have to commute up to to Manchester, or did you you and your family move closer to Manchester? How did that kind of work? So, how it worked when I signed for the club was I'd go to school in Cambridge, where I lived from Monday to Friday, and then I'd finish school early on a Friday and get the train up to Manchester and spend every weekend up in Manchester. So on a Saturday, I'd be on the bench for the, the A or the B team. And on the Sunday, I'd play for my age group and then travel home after that. And then on every school holidays, I'd spend all them, uh, that time up in Manchester until I finished school at 16 and moved up full time. I assume then, uh, you know, as a teenager and, and going up and playing for United and, and doing all of that, that must have been sort of time of your life type of experience. Yeah, it was incredible, to be fair. Before I went to Man United, I played for Arsenal, and I never, fantastic football club, but didn't really enjoy it that much. I was a real quiet, shy lad who didn't like 
playing with other people was more happy playing with my friends out in the garden or at the park. So I didn't enjoy going to Arsenal that much. But the second I went up to United, I felt part of a family immediately, really. It just was the way that you were made to feel, how important you were made to feel. You just felt part of it immediately. And I absolutely loved every moment that I spent up there as a, as a schoolboy. And I couldn't wait for the weekends to, to get up to Manchester. Yeah, you, you'd often hear about people talk about Man United as almost being like different to, to the way that other clubs operate, especially when, obviously, when Ferguson was in charge. Was, did you find it was kind of a kind of unique environment to work in or to, you know, to play football in? Yeah, with that, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before in my life. And the, the, it all came from Sir Alex Ferguson. He built that environment, that culture of people loving going to work and he had a part of every single part of the football club. He ran it from top to bottom and had everyone really pulling in the same direction to move the club forward and to get that incredible success that, that he achieved while at the club. And how did you sort of find the transition into, you know, as you say, I mean, you were, you'd, you'd been at Arsenal and, and, and I assume you were kind of known in, in school for being a good footballer and, and that sort of thing. How did you transition into being sort of going from Luke Chadwick to Luke Chadwick, the lad who plays for Man United as a, as a young lad? Yeah, I was probably always known at school in the local area as a, as a gifted football player. I was probably quite popular because of the reason that I was very good at football. Like I say, I was a real quiet and shy. I was more outgoing when I was comfortable with the people that I was with. But it did probably make me stand out and make me feel important. It felt good. And I certainly let everyone know that I played for Man United. I'd wear me tracksuit into school and that sort of thing. I was certainly keen to show off the fact that I was a, a young player at Manchester United. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. I, when I was in school, I had, um, I had a, a trial for the, the Whittle School Boys and um, I spent the whole day, <laughs> almost the whole day, every time anyone mentioned anything about the, the afternoon or the afternoon. Sorry, I, I won't be in the lesson this afternoon. Got a, got a trial for Whittle School Boys. Yeah, lad, yeah, so. <laughs> um, so when you started to kind of become part of the first team, what was the sort of the biggest thing that you remember noticing about the, the difference in going to that sort of elite environment? Yeah, going into the actual first team on a regular basis was I came back from Royal Antwerp where I was on loan and went into the first team. And obviously the, the thing that you notice immediately is sort of the standard of everything involved. Like every single player is incredibly gifted. The intensity, everyone wants to win. Every training session is just as important as a game. And you, you notice that immediately going into that environment. I remember one of the first training sessions sort of giving a sloppy pass away and Roy Keane telling me in no uncertain terms that you can't do that here. This is different to Antwerp it's different to the youth team and it was um, a hugely challenging environment but also one that you you was absolutely buzzing to be a part of really because you were fighting and striving every day to stay at the level of these world-class football players and one of the things that I always wonder about sort of young players coming through and it's kind of a, a bit of a I'd say it was probably a cliche it's the type of thing that we hear quite a lot is you know, young players play without fear. Is that is that true? Is that actually true? When you come through, you, you kind of not appreciate all of the pressures that go on? 
Yeah, I think that is definitely true. I think you probably, at my, personally, me at Manchester United, probably felt the pressure more at training where you was with these guys on a training pitch in that environment than on a game where you are just feel completely free. But I do think the more, the older you get in game in the, the world of football, the more you start to maybe overcomplicate things and think about things too much, really. Whereas a, as a young kid, in my case anyway, it was sort of pinch yourself every morning. It was like living in a dream, like a whirlwind for the season that I was involved with the first team. And then I suppose, as you mentioned, the kinds of the, the, the pressure that comes with being in that environment and being a, a young player and getting into the team and playing matches and all the sort of scrutiny that comes with that. What were your sort of outlets, maybe like outside of, the, of training, outside of, the, of, of football that, that, you know, allowed you to sort of stay on an even keel? Were you, what, what type of things did you do to, to remain sort of stable, if you know what I mean? Probably nothing. It probably wasn't on an even keel. I think from the age, well, certainly from moving up as a full-time player at 16, football just engulfed my life, really. It was all I was worried about. It's all I cared about. I used to eat, sleep and drink football. So in hindsight, it probably wasn't a, a healthy, stable mindset that I was in because all, all that I was bothered about was football and doing everything I could. I think you look at it now and it's probably not a healthy way to be you've got to have other outlets what you've what you spoke about there but for me at that time it was my life was completely engulfed and I was in the the football bubble as it were and just ready to do anything to to get as far as I possibly could in the game and you've spoken recently about the the, the jibes and some of the abuse that you got as um as a young person and they were all kind of fixated around your your appearance and did they, was that the type of thing that you'd sort of had as a youngster or did it kind of start as you were getting older, as you started to get a little bit more famous? Yeah, I think obviously at school, probably the first time I people joked about my appearance or said nasty things about my appearance was at school. Obviously not as much as other people because I was quite popular because I was the footballer sort of thing, but I'd always be the pronagatist at times as well by the one that, thinking someone might say something horrible to me, I'd say something horrible to them first. And it it probably did. I was never comfortable with that. I'd never sort of take it as a joke. I think I always took it quite personally when people spoke about me and spoke about my appearance. I, I can't tell you why that is or why it hurt me that much, but it probably hurt me more than other people. That's in my opinion anyway. And then getting older, you sort of leave school and you think, oh, that won't happen anymore. And it's obviously probably a handful of occasions where someone would joke, jokingly say something about my teeth or being spotty and that sort of thing. Where And it probably did hurt me a little bit, which probably as time moved on and it went onto a national scale and I've not really dealt with why it hurt me so much at a younger age. It did affect me so badly and, and in such a negative way. We, we, you sort of, it's interesting though because we, we, you sort of see it with with a handful of players. I, the, the person that springs to mind is Peter Crouch. He, he's, he kind of had similar sort of jibes made about his appearance for one reason or another. And and I often wonder is it there's a there's a bit of a theme that we kind of keep coming back to on on the podcast, which is about how maybe footballers at that at that sort of level that you were playing at aren't treated in the same way or given the same respected treatments for feelings that 
that other people in society might have. Do you think that kind of being in that position that you were in, which is kind of viewed as a privileged position, almost makes people feel like you're fair game? Yeah, I think that's probably changed a little bit to a certain extent in terms of, obviously, it's more prevalent on social media, etc. these days, but in terms of the media in general, in terms of TV shows, newspapers, I think they are more attuned to, to thinking a little bit more about other people's feelings more than they did anyway. But I do, I do think you were seen as sort of fair game and you could say anything you want to these people because why should they be worried because they're professional footballers? And that was probably my attitude to a certain extent as well. I was, in my head, I thought there was something wrong with me because these jives made me feel so bad. But how can I say anything to anyone because I'm in such a privileged position? How can I admit that I'm feeling down or low about this thing because I play for Manchester United. What what have I got to moan about? So that probably was the perception of other people, but also my perception of myself at that time as well. And did it affect your development as a footballer? I don't think it did. I wouldn't say that's the reason why I didn't have an incredible career at Manchester United and be a world-class player. I think there was other reasons behind that, but it did it did have a negative effect on my time off the pitch while playing for Manchester United, where it should have been the best years of my life, really. I was playing for the best team in the world, but I was so anxious, so worried about people saying things about my appearance. I wouldn't want to go out the flat or do other things because I was so had so much anxiety about people laughing at me all the time because of the situation I was in, really. We um we did an interview quite recently with um a guy called Danny Gray who who started up a, a men's makeup brand called War Paints and he had um body dysmorphia when he was when he was young which has kind of led to him having a number of different bits of surgery and he's had a hair transplant and and ultimately led him to starting the War Paints was 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 that ever something that kind of crossed your mind at all in terms of you know plastic surgery or augmenting your appearance or anything like that? Did it ever get so bad that you kind of were struggling to that level? No, I don't think so. I think I never, because I didn't think that I looked that bad, really. I, that, I just wanted it to stop. There was never any sort of self-loathing or anything like that. I always sort of loved myself, had a high opinion of myself. And I, I just hated the thought of sort of the embarrassment and shame of, in my opinion, the whole world just laughing at me at that time I think there was times as a as a kid I think I might have um, had a few spots on my face and was going to the the local disco or something I might have stuck <laughs> a bit of my mum's foundation on or something <laughs> and that was probably about as far as it went yeah you and me both <laughs> <laughs> um did you ever did you ever talk to anyone at, at the club about those sorts of things was that something that the players and, and coaches and stuff were they aware of that or did no. they kind of just assume it was just one of those things yeah, I, I didn't speak to any, like not 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 anyone about. It. I never spoke to my family, my mum, my dad, my brother, my girlfriend. I just kept it all to myself, all deep inside. I never had any intention of saying how bad that I felt about it because it just wasn't something that I do. Like I say, I was a quiet, shy boy. I had no emotional intelligence. I didn't understand why I was feeling how I felt, and I weren't. I was never going to tell anyone that I was feeling like this, really. And you you talked there about 
shame and, and embarrassment and that type of thing. Do you think sort of insecurity, anxiety about appearance and, and that sort of thing is, is a maybe a sort of slightly more awkward topic for men to talk about? Yeah, I think you could say that. I think whatever your insecurities are, regardless of what it is, it's always going to be hard to talk about that. It's not a easy, it's always going to be an awkward subject to broach. So whether you're overweight, the way you look, stuff like that, it's always a sort of a, a taboo subject that people have in the history have suffered in silence about it rather than spoke out about it and made people understand why they why they feel a certain way. And you you've obviously in recent times kind of spoken out publicly, but I presume in the interim periods in those years, you've kind of confided in sort of loved ones and friends and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think like they say, times are a great healer. This situation was 20 odd years ago now, and I've sort of grown up a lot since then and over the years got over that problem years and years ago. But the reason that I sort of spoke out about it, probably the message probably got mixed up a little bit in terms of, oh, was incredibly surprised of how much traction the tweet got but it was more a case of not wanting to probably quite naively I didn't want to get loads of attention about it it was around sending a positive message of trying to talk about your problems when you have them rather than keeping them deep inside something that I'd done all them years ago Um, and in terms of the sort of the release of the emotions from talking out how, what what did that how did that help or did, did did that improve the way that you felt about the situation yeah I think just like any situation when you're when you're feeling low you're feeling down it, it always feels such a a massive weight off your shoulder to to open up a little bit and sort of that power of vulnerability something I think in the sporting world anyway in football is something that sort of or has been in the past frowned upon really you can't show weakness you don't want to show anyone that you're you're feeling down because it's perceived as weakness but being having that power of vulnerability to allow you to to talk about your feelings and it it is a it does take a a huge weight off your shoulders of getting it out there and seeing that someone does understand you because when you keep things inside for such a a long period of time you start to feel like this it's not normal. No one will understand me. I can't speak out about it now. And there was a, an article that I read where you you said that you were feeling low inside and still wanted to keep that tough exterior on the outside. Did you have any concerns about if you were to talk openly about your mental health when you were a player that it may affect your sort of future career prospects? Um, I think that could be, it probably wasn't my perception at the time. I think my perception was just of not speaking out was just pure embarrassment and just wouldn't ever know how to to start the conversation out or go and seek someone out. But I think uh, I probably did feel it at times in my career. If I can't say that oh, I ain't sort of in the right frame of mind to play play today or that sort of thing, then you won't play again. I think that it, we are coming away from that a little bit where sort of, mental health is seen as as the important thing that it is. And you've got to be, if the mental health's not right, then whatever you're doing in life is not going to be at the best of your ability. So I think we are getting more into a situ- situation now where it's, it's not perceived as a weakness and vulnerability is seen 
more as a more of a strength which it which it can be yeah 100 percent. and and if, and if you had of say if you had sent you know the, the, the tweet that you wrote if you know you'd have written that you know obviously it wouldn't have been on twitter because it wasn't around when you were when you were at, at that age but if you had written that say when you were sort of 19 20 21 if you that had come out as a headline what do you kind of think the reaction might have been if you'd have, if you'd have said those words at that time i think it would have been more split in terms of the generation that we were living in then i think i would have got a, a lot of support particularly from my family from the football club and that sort of thing but i think from outside of that the the perception would have been a little bit more split where the sort of reaction i got when i sent it in 2020 or whenever it well yeah 2020 it was a real positive reaction from 95 percent of people because of obviously the situation we're in how much we've we've moved on in the world since 20 years ago in in that respect yeah absolutely i think that that's really true and and one other thing that that i was wondering do you know when um you know when you're going through these type of things or you know if you're being singled out for something in particular you know i mean we've seen it you know, recently with say like Harry Maguire or uh, Raheem Sterling's gone through it in the past. Do players kind of confide in one another? Because obviously, it, it it'd be difficult for to get that understanding of the situation if you weren't in those positions. Is it something that players talk to one another about, or is it something that maybe wasn't so much when you started playing but got better when you were slightly older? Yeah, I think it's certainly something that moved forward as the time went on. I think we've the Harry Maguire situation, obviously, it's a it's more football where if I was in the situation now, I think it'd be harder to talk about that because there probably wouldn't be many other people going through the the same thing in terms of people talking about your appearance that isn't football related. I think we've all, as footballers, me as much as anyone else, have gone through periods where you're not playing the best of your abilities and you've, you're in another football, you've always got that sort of, someone who's been through it as well at the same time. So I would I would imagine at this time, Harry Maguire is getting a lot of support from his teammates and colleagues at the club. And just on that, Luke, I read that you said, I don't think I was ever going to truly make it at Manchester United or you never truly believed you were going to make it. Um, can you sort of talk us through why you think that was? Was it just ability or do you think it was mentality as well? Um, I think when I went up there as a 16-year-old boy, I never perceived myself being in the first team. It was an incredible opportunity to obviously go to the biggest football club in the world and sort of learn your trade. And then in my mind, I thought I might go to another club and have a career in professional football. Having said that, when I went to Royal Antwerp and I'd done really well and got a huge amount of confidence of excelling for a first team at a good club, I came back to United and probably... In that season during the Premier League, when I won the Premier League, I was part of the squad that won the Premier League, probably did see myself as being capable of playing for Manchester United for that season and being at a level at times in training, being one of the better players, even in some of the games, having real positive effect on it. I think the, the one outstanding, or the main outstanding quality I had as a footballer, as a young footballer, was being incredibly fast I think when I went into my second season I suffered with some problems with my pelvis and hips which resulted in surgery and when I came back from that I probably lost a little bit of that speed and without that 
outstanding quality of speed. I think after that, I was never going to make it at Manchester United and have an incredible career there, which the, the manager told was completely honest with me about. So in terms of the belief, I think I always loved playing football. The dream was to always be a professional footballer, whether that have been at Manchester United or, or Cambridge United. I've had an incredible journey as a footballer, but in terms of my mentality I was always to go and do my best and work as hard as I can, which I, I think I've done throughout my career. But without the incredible speed that I had as a young man growing up, it was I didn't have enough else to, to make it at a top, top club. And just from speaking to you today, Luke, and, and I've mentioned earlier, I've watched you on Under the Cosh and various other interviews, obviously come across as very approachable, very nice person. Do you think you maybe lack that sort of cutthroat ability to walk over people and maybe be a bit ruthless when you needed to be? Um, I don't, I wouldn't like to say that because I think there's too much, I think we get sucked down that sort of mindset of you can't be really successful if you're a nice guy, which I, I don't think is true really. I think on a football pitch, I always done everything I could to be successful. At the end of the day, I had a career in football, not a, an amazing career with loads of England caps and loads of trophies, but I had a career in it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that ruthless streak that I may not have outside of the game didn't, wasn't a reason why I didn't excel on the pitch. And um, we mentioned, like me, yourself and Danny are both Tramway fans. So when you had that um, period at MK Dons, I remember seeing you play quite a lot and you always stood out at that level. I think you, you seemed to win play with the year most years you were there. And it always seemed like you probably should have been at least in the championship. Was it just the case of you were very comfortable there and enjoying your football? Yeah, I think as my career went on, it was more a case of being happy and settled. So in terms of I'm from Cambridge, I live in a lovely place and that was where I wanted my children to grow up. And, and when I saw I was at Norwich and then signed for MK Dons and it was I was just comfortable there in the fact that I was settled on the pitch and settled off the pitch, being close to home, living where I grew up, having a lovely family at home all the time. And it was it was just a real good period for me on the football pitch and off the pitch as well. And how important is that? Because we say this a lot on the show, it's often glamorised the life of being a footballer, but being settled in one area and being happy must, must have a huge impact on the pitch. Yeah, I think it's sort of getting that balance right, which is is so hard as a professional footballer where, like I mentioned at the start, football sort of engulfs your whole life and that's that takes over and that can be to the... It can be tough for your family at times, your wife, your children, when football is the be-all and end-all. I think having a more balance in your life of having footballs and is so hard to do, but coming away from football and switching off from it can help loads in to for a longevity of a football career. So it is it's so important. In, spoke about football, but in any anything you do, really, it's so important to have that balance in your life. And did you take on a bit of a, a role model approach as you as you got older? Because was Carl Robinson the manager at MK Dons? I think he started quite young, didn't he? I imagine for somebody who's had the career you've had and the experience you've had of Ferguson and United and some of the other big clubs you played for, was you almost seen to be the one that people would look up to for advice or stories? And Did you take on that role at all in any club you played for? 
Yeah, I think uh, to, towards the latter end of my career, I took on that role more as sort of in terms of looking up to of how that I conducted myself on and off the pitch, how hard that I'd work. I weren't a great talker or a shouter in the dressing room and that sort of thing, but I'd go to training every day with the lessons that I learned, at, obviously growing up at Manchester United and I'd work as hard as I possibly could every day. And I think I was seen as someone for the younger players to look at and aspire to be a better footballer than me, but have that attitude of doing everything right at the right time, training right every day. So in that respect, I think that I was probably looked looked upon as someone to look up to, particularly at clubs like MK Dons and Cambridge United. Yeah, and I suppose at United, they probably teach you how to do things properly and how to present yourself. And it's not, as you say, it's not always about being vocal, is it? It's about how you how you conduct yourself and, and, and your attitude. And uh, that can be just as important as being the loudest in the room from that regard, I suppose. Yeah, Did you have offers then to, to go back up to the championship and you just stay, stayed because you were happy? Yeah, there, there was opportunities, but again, it was it would have been a case of travelling half the country and leaving home again, which as I was getting older, I weren't really interested in doing. And the grass isn't always greener on the other side. You, you, you understand and learn that in football. And while I was happy at Milton Keynes, I was happy to stay there as long as they wanted me, really. And once you've then re retired, how did you transition? Did you find that okay? Was you comfortable knowing what you wanted to do? Or did you have any difficulty no longer being with Chadwick the footballer? Yeah, that's probably the hardest period of my life, really, is finishing football and probably not admitting to myself that my football career had come to the end and sort of not knowing where your, your place is in the world anymore. Like you say, being known as a footballer since the age of probably nine, ten around the local villages and then becoming a professional footballer, you it's hard to understand what you can offer in this world anymore. And it was a real challenging times for a for a good couple of years probably before really accepting that that football was over, but using that as a positive and being excited of, about what comes next and what else you can achieve in the next chapter of your life. And I don't really like saying, what would you go back and change? Because I think a lot of people just rather focus forward on, on looking at a sort of learned experience. But was there a decision you made along the way in your career or anything that happened that looking back could have been a little bit different if you made a different choice? Yeah, I think there's loads of things, but I wouldn't, I don't think I'd look back with any regrets, really. It was um, an incredible journey that I went on as a footballer. There was massive ups and massive downs, but... I loved being a professional footballer. It was what I dreamed of doing when I was a kid. So I feel quite sort of honoured to be able to say that I lived my dream to a certain extent and become a professional footballer. So the only thing I'd probably change is when I signed for Man United as a 14, 15-year-old boy and sort of down in tools at school and not bothering with that anymore. I do wish that I stuck with my education and probably made better use of that time during my formative years. And did Manchester United, did they put any emphasis on education, Joe, in those sort of formative years from the ages of 15 to sort of getting a pro deal? To a certain extent, but I think it's, it, it's certainly different now for the better, that's for sure, where education is just as key as the football. I think 20 years ago, it was more seen as football was everything, and but you've got to tick this box and do the education. We've certainly moved on 
huge strides with the young kids involved in professional clubs these days with the provisions that they get within education. Absolutely. And as well as talking about your distinguished football career, we obviously want to join the show because you've been quite prominent in speaking out on, on mental health. And there was quite a, a high profile incident with Nick Hancock and Gary Lineker where they, they sent public apologies. And I think you mentioned you don't hold any resentments. And how important was that for you to let go of any sort of negative energy? Yeah, well, I sort of let go of it anyway, really. I think I was never... Like when the show was on, I was never sort of watching the show thinking, oh, I hate these guys. I hate them so much. It was more of a case of I was just wishing and praying that it'd stop and it'd just go away. So I don't think I ever sort of took a real dislike to these people. I just always wanted it to stop. So obviously the the people have apologised. There was never, it was never about that. And I think my concern was that what, the whole story turned into was just all about the people that appeared on the show. They think it's all over. So obviously I accept their apologies, but it was never about that. It didn't make me feel any better or any worse, but it was obviously nice to get that, but there's no, I don't hold any grudge to, to any of these people. And of course, like you mentioned there, it's, it's important not to hold a grudge. If you can let things go, you can, you can sort of get hung up on that sort of thing and wish bad on other people where your best bet is to relinquish that feeling and just concern yourself with your, you and those around you that you love. Absolutely. Um, it, it's one of those things, especially with, with male circles, isn't it? You get it in WhatsApp groups and banter just turned, can sometimes go a little bit over the top and before you know it, it turns into a bit of a slang and match. And um, I think sometimes we're not worthy enough of the impact that can have. Um, just on that, do you? How do you sort of manage your mental health on a day-to-day -day basis now? Do you have any sort of coping mechanisms? Is there anything you do? Are you somebody who follows routine? Yeah, I think I'm just open to talk. If I'm feeling not feeling great one day, I think just being open to talk about that. And I think the biggest thing I've learned throughout my life is, as I mentioned earlier, that power of being vulnerable and allowing yourself to be vulnerable. I think you can get all pent up by trying to be a big strong man all the time and trying to keep things bottled up and not mention them when you feel when you feel down but that it's always tough carrying on like that and there's going to be a point where you'll just crack and break so just being able to to talk about things I'm quite a happy guy and I'm usually quite high and happy but sometimes I feel a bit low but then I'll talk about why I feel low I'll talk to other people I'll reflect myself why I feel low and get over things that way and it it's so much quicker and easier having that vulnerability and having that in emotional intelligence of knowing that you're not you're not feeling really good today. Yeah, I think that's absolutely great advice for anybody listening. We often bottle it up until it's it's a bigger problem than it needs to be, uh, rather than just accepting that you're going to have low days. Really, and not allowing those low days to turn into two, three low days or a week. Just just deal with them as they come and feel a bit low and as you mentioned talk about it and I know you're a big advocate of just being kinder to people which seems like a very simple thing to do on the outside but often it's something people seem to miss and it's more pertinent now than ever I think how, how do you approach that how do you approach sort of your work that you're doing now with kids and, and encouraging people to just sort of be nicer to each other yeah and I think it's a case of lessons again that I learned at Manchester United of treating people how 
you want to be treated yourself. And I think that's obviously really old advice, but really good advice as well, where if you're good to someone, they're going to be nice back to you. And it, it's the best way to, to live your life. I think too often in my past, anyway, I've had preconceived ideas about someone and it's a real dangerous game doing that. If you just treat everyone with the respect they deserve and then it's your decision whether you want to carry on a relationship with that person, talking to that person or not, but always looking yourself in the mirror and saying that you done everything you possibly could to be nice to everyone that you met today. And it is, it can be challenging for some people to do, but one like anything else, if you you practice something, you practice being nice, there's not many better things to practice than being nice. You soon get used to it and you can soon build relationships in a real positive manner. Yeah, it's like that saying, isn't it? It's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. And I think that really, really is true. Um, just sort of finally, then we could kind of wrap up. What, what's life looking like for you now? I know you're involved in the football fun factory. Um, I believe you were doing some coaching at one point as well. Where were you up to in your sort of career? Yeah, so I obviously I spoke about earlier struggling at the end of my football career and sort of went down the the football coaching route because I thought that's what you've got to do as an ex-player. So I'd done all my coaching qualifications, got a job at a professional club in the academy. She probably should have been a dream job for an ex-professional footballer, but I just didn't enjoy it really. I found it hard getting out of bed, going to work. They probably thought though the game got professionalised a little bit too early. The kids come in a little bit too young to be at a professional football club weren't enough smiles it seemed like it was probably about the destination rather this incredible journey that you're on as a young child going through the ranks of a, a professional club so I stepped away from that and joined a couple of ex-colleagues in the football fun factory the the organization that we're just growing at the moment and it sort of stripped football all back to to what it was like growing up as a kid I don't remember as a eight nine year old the football coach telling me any technical or tactical tactical information that I remembered, but I do remember it being loads of fun and I loved going there and running around with a smile on my face. So this is what I'm involved with at the moment, really, the Football Fun Factory, which is just around making football fun for young children between two and 12. And rather than judging training sessions on what the kids have learned about football, judging training sessions on making sure everyone goes home with a big smile on their face because they've they've loved what they're doing. Brilliant. And what is your, your role within the Football Fun Factory? Are you delivering sessions? Are you more head office based? Yeah, so my first role, I was a, had my own franchise in the community where I grew up. So I had a set uh, sessions at the school where I used to go to many, many years ago and sessions that I um, that my children went to school at. So it was really community based and sort of giving something back to the area that I grew up in playing football. Now, as the, as the organisation grows, my role's around identifying new head coaches to come on board with our organisation and building partnerships with like-minded companies that we can work together with. So it's something com completely different, but something I'm so excited about growing and I feel so much happier being out of professional football. I absolutely loved my time in it, but this is a chance to do something completely different albeit still in football but something that we're so passionate about and real keen to grow 
That's fantastic. And you can tell just by speaking to you just how passionate you are about it. And I think um, finding enjoyment in what you do is the talk of battle, isn't it? So that's very exciting, something we'll certainly keep our eye on. And just finally on that, as, as sort of close things up, as somebody who's come through the Youth Academy at Manchester United, at the peak of the powers, really, and all the way through to the Football Fun Factory and working at academies after you've played through it. What sort of change would you like to see in the game from academy level? Um, it's a hard question because there, there is so much fantastic work that goes on in professional clubs, academies, but I do, I do think there's scope to sort of delay coming into a professional club, like the kids coming at seven, eight, nine years old and the game gets professionalised so early and they sort of miss out them incredible years that I still remember of playing with my mates and playing for my grassroots team. So I think if there's any change that I could make, I think it'd probably delay in the kids coming into professional football clubs till they're a, a little bit older and just allow them a bit more opportunity to, to be kids because the stats speak for themselves in terms of such few numbers go through to make it to professional footballers, which is fine as long as they've had an incredible journey on the way. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Luke Chadwick there. Quite a lot of different bits and bobs to pick up from, from some of the stuff that he said and, and relating back to the theme of, of the power of vulnerability that we mentioned right at the very top of this episode. Ryan, as, as, as a listener, as, as the other half of the uh, the interview as well, we, you know, you and I did that one. It was one weekday evening, wasn't it, after work? And what are the kind of things that, that you took away? What did you learn from the conversation that we had with Luke? Yeah, I think you, you touched on it there and we touched on it in the theme. It was the power of vulnerability and to be open and to accept ourselves as being vulnerable. You made a really uh, um, sort of pertinent point that when you don't accept being vulnerable, you, you close up and you normally take a lot on, too much on to the point where eventually you reach breaking point. And I think that's where a lot of issues arise really from that, that inability to, to tackle them at an earlier stage. Um, Luke was, was very open about that and I think he, he accepted himself that maybe he only learned that later in life. So I think um, one thing I certainly learned from, from listening to Luke is, is it's okay to, to be vulnerable, accept being vulnerable. And I suppose when you, you do that, it probably allows you to, to treat other people differently as well. You spoke a lot about being kind to other people and I suppose once you accept your own vulnerabilities, you start to see other people as vulnerable as well. And I think that can only be a good thing because it, it gives you awareness to, to treat others how you want to be treated, really. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's, you know, linking back into the theme that you talked about around vulnerability and a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast around footballers. There was a, a story this week, I don't know if you saw it, Ryan, on, on Twitter about um, Dundee defender Jordan Forster, who was tweeting about something that was posted in the... Um, I think it was the Evening Telegraph, which is a newspaper up in up in Scotland, where he was linked with a move away, I think, from Dundee. And they the whoever it was who put the newspaper together put some tweets that people had written about uh Jordan, which some of them were so one of them is uh, we can pack his bags for him if needed. He's absolutely woeful. Another one is he's been extremely poor, big guy, but big disappointment. And there's I think there's about eight or nine of them. And Jordan was tweeting about how, whilst for him is his mental health and his mental well-being is 
is good at the moment. He's, you know, he's fine. But he was complaining about the way that footballers are treated and about the way the footballers are talked about. And that's something that we've spoken about on the podcast numerous times. And especially with regards to Luke Chadwick, that he was almost he was almost treated as fair game because he was a footballer and some of the things that were said about him at the time and, and the way that he was treated and the way that some footballers have been treated subsequent to that as well. You can see why there is a difficulty for players to accept and and appreciate and, and take on that vulnerability as we've as we've mentioned and as we've said in, in the theme today that it you know if you're getting those jabs from all sides and you're being treated in such a way then to accept that level of vulnerability is incredibly difficult, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And and I did see those those um, tweets by Jordan. I thought he, he hit the nail on the head really because he he, he almost shouted about the what was wrong without making it about him, yeah. which I thought was very powerful because he didn't he even said at one point, I think the, the the reporter or the editor even tweeted him back and said, We're sorry, we shouldn't have done that. We've apologized to the club. And I think he commented, well, why are you apologizing to the club? It was about me. Yeah. Um, and again, that just shows you even when somebody's been almost embarrassed into apologizing that they still miss the point of what they did wrong. Yeah. Which is That's damaging an individual. And um, everyone just assumes, oh, it's brand. We're damaging the club's brand or we're damaging the newspaper's brand. It's like, oh, just strip this back. You're just being not very nice to another human being is simply yeah. what's happening. And it's unnecessary, isn't it? Like, it's just not necessary. Like, what's relevant? Has any of that got to do with what you're reporting on? It's just, it's bizarre. And there is a bit of a theme that we notice around the way that, you know, you, you only have to look at a bad result when when it's tweeted, Um, you know, that the official Twitter accounts, you know, unfortunately we've lost 3-0 today at home. So, and you go in the replies and it is absolutely horrible. Some of the things that people say in, in reaction to what is, what is just an individual result. Um, you were also talking, Ryan, about the, uh, you know, Luke's work with the Football Fun Factory and, you know, the sort of bringing joy back into young people's football, which we spoke about on Jason Lampkin's episode a little bit, didn't we, last week? I think that's um, the Football Fun Factory. For anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's well worth checking out. We'll put some links up on our on our Twitter account. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a fresh sort of, you know, interesting approach to youth football, isn't it? It is, it's, it, and I think it's very important because I think there's a lot of people, and I would probably do the same if I was a former footballer who take football very seriously and you'd, you'd want to go into coaching and you'd want to be the best and continue to, to be competitive as, as a coach or a manager as you were a player. But Luke mentioned that he didn't really enjoy getting out of bed and going to work to do that. He just, he done all the badges. He, he had the playing career, he had the knowledge, he had the experience, but he didn't enjoy it. Mm. And Maybe elements of his childhood were stripped away by having to take football so seriously so young. And I think that's probably allowed him to to maybe, as an adult, want to give others the opportunity to just enjoy football for longer, which is something we've talked about before. But I think it's very important. I mean, we all grow up wanting to be professional footballers, but it's not something you're born with. It's something that you develop, you see on the telly, and you, you want that. But we all love football first and foremost, just in the park with a family member or a family friend, running around, not caring. Result doesn't matter. It's just the fun of running, sweating your little head off as a, as a child, kicking the ball, <laughs> just having fun. And then that soon blossoms into more of a team-oriented sport. Then you develop friends. And I just think that's, that's so important. It's so important. And the work they're doing there at the Football Fun Factory is to 
to give those opportunities for, for children to go and play in that environment, make friends, not take football too seriously, but probably brush up on on, on their ability as well in the process as a, as a byproduct of just having fun. Yeah, that's a good point. Because it's, a, I suppose, in order to be in an environment where you're properly coached or properly mentored or, you know, given the kind of, you know, the information and the development that, that players get at a more serious level, you'd also have to lose something about the fun elements of it. And I think that's what they've tried to do is to be able to provide some good coaching, but also keep it as a, you know, relaxed, enjoyable environment for children. Uh, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap us up there, mate. Thank you for for your time today, mate, and thank you to you, the listener, for listening today. If you are, if you've enjoyed today's episode, or if you have enjoyed any of our previous episodes, if you could jump over to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts and give us a, a rating and a review, that would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, and if you want to interact with us, you can email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at marking underscore man. And don't forget to use that hashtag, where's the talking lads? As usual, we will um, put you in the direction of some places if you've been affected by any of the issues discussed in today's episode or any of the other episodes. There are some links and phone numbers in our bio of today's episode and of every episode, but just in short, Samaritans have a 24-hour phone line, which is 116-123, and the Calm Zone also have a phone line, which is 5 p.m. to midnight, and that's 0800 58 58 58 if you ever feel the need to reach out and speak to anybody. So we're going to leave you now with Luke Chadwick's quick fire and we will see you again on Friday where we'll be bringing you another episode of Not For Me Clive where we'll be discussing England fans abroad with their Guardian journalist Barney Roney. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. I've just been uh, I've just been watching some some of your goals on on YouTube Luke. I don't think I've ever seen anybody so excited to score a goal. <laughs> I was goal. quite surprised. I didn't Did you not see me down on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, right, when you scored, everybody's surprised. <laughs> so you were born in Cambridge, Luke. If you hadn't become a footballer, would you have had fancied your chances at attending the university? No, not after I sort of got involved with football because I didn't take any notice of what the teachers were telling me, so I wouldn't have had any chance whatsoever with that one. <laughs> um, Luke, did you ever see Roy Keane make a joke? Yeah, a fair few times. He was um he was had an incredible character and had was quick witted as well at the same time. I always want to know with Roy Keane, do you know when he's barking at people for misplacing the pass, as you said earlier, what would be his reaction if he misplaced one in training? Well, <laughs> that that's the thing. That that was the reason why he could do that, because his standards were sort of so high and I can't even remember him giving away a pass, and that is why <laughs> everyone sort of accepted that he'd have a go at them because he, I think if your standards aren't right, you can't really have a go at someone else's if they aren't. But his standards were so high every day that you sort of accepted Roy Keane having a go at you because he wouldn't do the same thing that you've just done. Um, so obviously Ferguson was famous for chewing gum. He looked like he'd be an extra strength mint, but was it really hubba bubba? I didn't see him blowing any bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, I like the way you said that he was famous for chewing gum rather than being famous for being arguably the greatest club manager in the in the game. <laughs> just know, just known for gum. <laughs> That's a very good point, man. <laughs> Would you rather lose your wedding ring or your Premier League medal? Oh, definitely Premier League medal. 
They'll be holding <laughs> yeah. if I lost my wedding ring. <laughs> so we've got Roy Keane, David Beck, and Paul Scholes. You've had a snog one, marry one, or be oh, sp- No, you've gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't even finished the question. <laughs> I don't even want to the rest of it. So you got snog, marry, or be stuck in a lift for 72 hours, and it's Roy Keane, Beckham, or Scholes. I'd have to snog Bex. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd marry... I'd have to marry Scolesy then. I'd <laughs> in a lift with Roy Keane. Gee, that sounds frightening. <laughs> yeah, that would be. I don't know if I made the right decision. I think I'd marry Beckham, mate. I think he'd have a happy life. <laughs> who, are you, who are you kissing, right? Oh, you'd have to be quick to kiss Roy Keane, wouldn't you? Yeah, imagine how little he'd enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Luke, what was the, the, the highlight of your career? The highlight of my career, my favourite moment was scoring for Cambridge United after I signed for them up there the Newmarket Road end. So it's where I used to stand as a teenager growing up watching the game. And it was always sort of my fantasy to score a goal up that end. So to actually do it, I've never felt like that on a football pitch before. It was um, an incredible, incredible moment. I absolutely love that, Luke, that you've got a Premier League medal and you've chose that as your highlight. Because as Tramia fans, um, we're exactly the same. That'd be like my highlights going for Tramia. Nah, I disagree, mate. If I had made like one appearance with Ferenc Varos or something in like Europa League <laughs> qualifier, that'd be the highlight for me. <laughs> so when players are coming on from the bench and the coaches are giving out instructions, are you actually listening or just nodding along, waiting to get on? Usually just nodding along. You sort of forget <laughs> everything. The worst things where you're getting told where you are at set plays and you know as soon as you get on the pitch, you would have forgotten everything they told you and you'd just be walking around the 18-yard box like a like a lost lost puppy. So that was always the worst thing, was trying to remember where you are on set plays when you're getting coming off the bench. Uh, Ryan and I went on a, a night out in Cambridge uh, a few years ago, and we got booted out of every place at about 3 o'clock in the morning. There was nowhere open. Why do all the nightclubs in Cambridge shut at 3 a.m.? I don't That's always been the way. It's always been... There's never been anywhere that stays open any later than 3. That's all I know. I didn't know anywhere stayed open later than that. It's too early. It's too early. It's to do with the university, apparently. It's the same in Oxford. Really? Yeah. To to stop the students being literally on Bendis till six, seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah, they have quite a lot of influence. I think it dates back quite a lot a long time. Like Yeah, the university sort of have a say in everything that happens in the city because all more or less every building in Cambridge is in some way owned by the university so I would imagine that that's got a something to do with the three o'clock kick out time we also went in that place do you remember right where they wouldn't let us take drinks onto the dance floor and every time you took your drink onto the dance floor the, the bouncer came over and told you to put it down it was mad, like a, mad... Tea, a tiki place or something yeah the maddest place I've ever been in my life and then, uh, and then we got told off by the police for singing a Yannick Balassi song really loud at about four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think we'll be loud back to Cambridge if we ever wanted to go again. <laughs> it sounds like you had a terrible night out anyway. <laughs> yeah, we've been to watch Tramia at Peterborough in the FA Cup, hadn't we? And, yeah. Um, I really want to go. To, I've never been to Cambridge away. I've always wanted to go. I've never been. 
You should have stayed in Peterborough. It's probably not as picturesque as Cambridge, but I reckon you get a late drink there. That's what <laughs> <laughs> problem is you're stuck in Peterborough. <laughs> um, Luke, that that's all of our questions, mate. Thank you, thank you so much for for your time this evening. It's been it's been really fun. No worries. Enjoyed talking to you, lads. Cheers, mate. Take care and have a yeah. Yeah, as Ryan says, hopefully we can kind of you know get out of this situation fairly soon and, and get back to normal and get back to football. Yes, definitely, mate. Take care, guys. Cheers, Luke. Cheers, Luke. Bye. Bye.